highest of heights to the depths of the sea. But of the children, uh, back in verse 22 in our text tonight, it says, But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no force laborers. He made the, those people who are left in the land, they were to be the laborers because they were men of war. Uh, they were the men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, his commanders of his chariots, and his cavalry. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with senior pastor and teacher Rob Kellogg. You are amazing, God. Of all the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Persites, Hivites, and Jebusites, Solomon raised forced labor from them. This was another apparent compromise by Solomon. God strictly commanded that the remnants of these tribes be driven out of the land and not used as slave laborers in Israel. Solomon didn't make Israelites forced laborers, but used them to oversee the remnants of the Canaanite tribes. In the future, there would be consequences to some of Solomon's actions. Obeying God is an important part of a relationship with Him. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he concludes chapter 9 in the book of 1 Kings. After David, you know, there was Asa, and there was Jehoshaphat, and Jotham, and certainly Josiah. These were the exemplary kings, and Josiah probably stands ahead of them all. But every one of the kings of, of Israel would fall into idolatry. And see, God would fulfill that warning and that prophecy that he gave to him. In verses 4 through 8 that we just read, because we know that he's going to take the northern kings into, into captivity by the Assyrians. And then 116 years later, in 586, he's going to burn down the temple, the Babylonians. And they're going to be taken captive to Babylon. Verse 10, now it happened at the end of 20 years. When Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, that Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. And King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. And then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. Now remember, Hiram was a really good confidant and a friend of his father David. Okay, so now David passes from the scene. Hiram is still alive. Now Solomon has this wonderful friendship. He, he remembers certainly his dad talking to Hiram. They probably had lunch together. And Solomon as a young boy was probably at the table and listening to these men. Now Solomon is a man. Now he's having these same interactions with this man. And for whatever reason, these, this land up in the Galilee region, which is very close to Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon would still be even north and west of the Galilee area. But Solomon gave him these things. But notice what it says. So uh, Hiram says, what kind of cities are these which you gave me, my brother? <laughs> and he called them the land of Kabul or Kabul as they are this day. And it literally means good for nothing. Thanks, but no thanks. 
right? So then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold, evidently as payment for this, this, this land, even though it wasn't really anything that great. And we'll find out that in Second Chronicles chapter 8, verse 2, that Hiram ultimately gives those back to Solomon and says, you know what, I really don't need them. You can take them. And then Solomon builds them up and inhabits them with the people of, of Israel. But notice in verse 15, so, and this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord. We looked at that a couple of chapters ago. In order to build the temple and all of those other buildings, it required a massive workforce. And so Solomon would put the, the peoples that were still in the land that the children of Israel didn't completely drive out, the Canaanites that were still in the land, he put them into uh, like a slave labor is really what it was. And so notice, and this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord and his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry or as a gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Because remember, Solomon had married the king of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter. And kings would often do this to build alliances and assurances with each other. Because uh, the king of Egypt is not going to come against Jerusalem knowing that his wife and, their, and her, his grandkids are there. So it kind of creates this kind of insurance, if you will, between nations and kings. And so Solomon was really big into that. And we're going to see it's going to get him into a lot of trouble. Uh, so Solomon built Gezer, a lower Beth Horon, Baalath, and Tadmor in the wilderness and in the land of Judah. And all the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, you might want to underline that, (laughs) cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. And here again is a harbinger, that's why I wanted you to underline it. The cities for his chariots and cavalry. This is one of the things that Solomon ought not to have done. He was not to have have built a cavalry, nor multiply wives. And we'll certainly get to that later. But Solomon was the first king in Israel to employ horses and chariots in fighting, in battle. He was the first one. In fact, God had told him, and and I'll just read this... um, In Deuteronomy chapter 17, back in the law before the Israelites even crossed over into the promised land, what did God tell the Jews before they went over? He says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it to dwell in and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you, notice who is not your brother, but here it is. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. There's God's direct revelation of what they should and should not do. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, which is exactly what Solomon did. For the Lord has said to you, uh, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. And how many did Solomon have? A thousand. We're going to see that coming shortly too. 
lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now, God had given Solomon great wealth, but it wasn't to be his motivation. It wasn't to be the thing that he would greed over, right? And then a few hundred years later, Samuel, remember that day that they had taken Samuel, or not Samuel, but Saul, and they were about ready to coronate him. And Samuel was really bringing the children of Israel to task because they wanted a king like all the other nations around them. And Samuel upbraided them, remember. Excuse me, in Samuel 8, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 10, and he said this. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his own horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. And so God here, through Samuel, is already knowing what's coming. Knowing what is coming. Solomon was not to do that. And notice in verse 20, And all the people who are left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to completely destroy. Remember, that was their problem. God told them to completely destroy these, these seven Canaanite peoples. And they failed to go in and do the job. They did a half-baked job. They did some of it. They didn't finish it. And as a result of that, those people with their idolatrous practices influenced the children of Israel. They began to do the very same thing. And that's why they were led into captivity, you see. And it was all because they didn't follow the very first thing. God made them accountable. He told them. Not to do it. In fact, let me just read a short one, and you've heard me say this before. Deuteronomy 7, the first 11 verses, is, is a really awesome verse. But let me just read to you this one, one that you've heard from me a number of times as we've gone through Samuel. But this was what God told them when they would go into the promised land. Remember, it was because of these people, the Canaanites, because of their hundreds of years of idolatry, God finally was going to judge them for that. And he was going to use his own people to do it. Notice what he said, Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. But of the cities, of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And why? It tells us in verse 18. Lest they teach you to do according to the abominations which they have done to their other gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. And do you remember this last Sunday morning when we looked at the what, what they did, some of the idolatrous practices? Do you remember the, the, the postpartum abortions that they did? They cast their sons and their daughters into the fire. They cast them into the hands of Molech and, and they burned and incinerated their children after they were born. That's the kind of sin these pagans, these Canaanites were doing for hundreds of years. And God said, enough's enough. Doesn't God have the right to judge when he is... No doubt these people, they knew what they were doing was wrong, but they were completely involved and engrossed in it. And God had a moment where he's like, you know what? He even told Abraham back in Genesis 15, he says, you know what? Your descendants are going to go into a land that doesn't belong to them, going to be ruled by a people for 430 years, and afterward they're going to come out. But not until then, because the iniquity of those Canaanites, the Amorites, it's not yet complete. I'm giving them a little more time isn't that wonderful of God? He gave them even more time. And so now they're in, the, in, in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. 
for the Egyptians. And God is going to do something in the people of Israel, and he's also going to be working on the hearts of the people of those seven nations in, the, in Canaan. They didn't turn from their idolatry. And so God says, okay, now's the time, Moses. Grab the people and bring them out. And by the way, you've got some work to do in the desert, so we're going to be out here for about 40 years. But we're, when we finally, finally go in, I need you to go in and decimate everything. Just trust me. And see, that's really hard, isn't it? But that's what God told them to do. But of the children, uh, back in verse 22 in our text tonight, it says, But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no force laborers. He made those people who were left in the land, they were to be the laborers because they were men of war. Uh, They were the men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, his commanders of his chariots, and his cavalry. One of the neat places that we go when we go to Israel, if, if we go next year, and I hope we do, um, pray, save up your money, and come with us. But you'll see in Megiddo, in the valley of Armageddon, Har Megiddo, it's, it's, a, it's a tell, uh, it's a, it's a, you'll, you'll see where Solomon had his, Megiddo was one of his chariot cities. And you actually walk up into, into, that, into that city of Megiddo, and they've uncovered most of it, a good chunk of it. And you can see the stables. And you can see the feeding troughs for the horses that Solomon had in Megiddo. You can walk right in them. <laughs> and just, I mean, just to hold your breath and say, Lord, take me back, you know, several couple thousand years ago. And you would be right there in the midst of all those horses that Solomon had. But you can see it right before you. It's amazing. And it's right there in the valley of Armageddon. And the Israeli Air Force drops their jets right in the middle of the valley of Esdralon. And then they just disappear underneath. They got a whole thing a network underneath there. But I'm having a lot of fun talking about this, so we better get going. But notice, verse 23, Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city to David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. And then he built the Milo. The Milo is basically a landfill. And we find out why he built, um, he wanted to get Pharaoh's daughter out of Zion, He wanted to get her out of that and build her her own house, which is nice because she has her own house. But here's the justification for that. And again, in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house which he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the place to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. And so here's a Gentile woman living in the area where David had the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. So Solomon had enough reverence in his heart. He's like, you know what, I, I, I love this woman. I don't know how great his love was, but he built her a house. So praise the Lord for that. I'm sure it was very nice. Probably nicer than any of our houses. But she was a Gentile. And so he wanted to build her her own house. Now three times a year, verse 25, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord. And he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. And so he finished the temple three times in a year. We know that there were three feasts that the Jews would always go to, and that's the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Oftentimes you'll see the Feast of Unleavened Bread by itself, but what it, what it really means is, of course, it means the Passover. Because it's the, fa- the Passover begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there, but, but sometimes you'll just see it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it it's really includes the Passover. Because that's what happens first, 
the day before, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread commences on the very next day. And so the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, and then finally the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the event on which the, the temple was inaugurated on. But notice verse 26 now, King Solomon, he also built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Elath on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And if you were to look at a map of, 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 of this area, you'll notice that the Sinai Peninsula is kind of shaped like an upside-down uh, pyramid. And on the west side is the Gulf of Suez, and on the right side of that is the Gulf of Aqaba, and it's all considered the Red Sea, but they are called uh, different gulfs. And so this place, Ezion-Geber, is in the northern part of the Sea of Aqaba, which is uh, in the, um, on the east side there at the very northern tip of the, the Gulf of Aqaba. And there's a couple of different locations where it could be. One is a little island on the, on the east or the west coast, excuse me, and they call that Pharaoh's Island. Uh, some scholars believe that that may be the place of Ezion-Geber. And others believe that it's up there uh, around Elat or Akaba or somewhere in the northern part up there is where Solomon had these ships and this kind of shipping uh, business with uh, Hiram, king of Tyre. And so uh, a pretty interesting thing. And so verse 27, Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, because the, the men of Israel, they weren't seamen. They, 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 they didn't know much about the sea. They, they fished around the Galilee, but as far as the big oceans are concerned, that just wasn't their gig. <laughs> and so um, Hiram sends his men to work with Solomon, and they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there, and brought it to King Solomon. Now that doesn't really mean a lot to us. But before we get to that, uh, this place called Ophir, uh, there's three different possibilities that many believe that it could be. It's, it's, it's really unknown, but there's some general ideas about this. The first one is in, the, uh, in South Arabia. If you were to look at a map of Saudi Arabia down there in the uh, uh, southwest corner there, uh, down there by Sheba, where the Queen of Sheba uh, will come from, and she will travel all the way up to see uh, Solomon here shortly. Or it could be the east coast of Africa, which uh, around there by Somalia and around that area of today. Or it could even be India, because as soon as you get out of the Red Sea, you can continue going east and you run right into India. And so this place called Ophir could be that. But 420 talents of gold... Now, what does that mean? Well, I did some math. I think you'll like this. So 420 talents of gold. A talent is about 75 pounds of, of metal. So 420 talents times 75, that's 31,500 pounds or 16 tons of gold. Today, as of today, gold per ounce is about $1,100 an ounce. You do the math, and it comes to be about 554,400,000. And this was just one segment of it. So think of how much that would be back then, comparatively. You know, So it's, it's quite a lot of money, quite a lot of money. And so as we look at this, we see Solomon gaining 
in, in, in his wisdom. He's gaining in his material possessions. There's some things that we're seeing along the way. We're going, oh, Solomon, you better be careful. God has told you to not to do these things. And yet he's doing them anyway. And all the while, God is just allowing him to see for himself. And you know what's really interesting, I find, and then we'll take communion. What I think is so interesting When you think of the book of Ecclesiastes, read that, especially as we get to the end of Solomon's career in chapter 11, and then read Ecclesiastes, and you'll find that Solomon learned a great lesson. And in fact, he was allowed to do something that most people don't get to do, and that is to live the life that everybody would want to live, to have the... the, All the wealth and all the wisdom that he had. I mean, people were freaking out when they would come and visit him. Queen of Sheba was breathless, literally, when she visited him. She had all kinds of questions. He's just answering her questions. She's sitting there with her mouth open, and she can't believe what is happening. So he had it all, and then he starts to take a turn. He starts to allow his wives to overrule him and to... Um, he gets involved in idolatry, and then he completely engulfs himself on this other side, on the dark side. And then at the end of it all, he comes back to himself, and he's like, you know what, I've done it all. I really have done it all. I've had it all. God's great blessing, all the knowledge, the, the wisdom, the money, the fame. I had everything that the world, any, any man or woman in the world could possibly want. I've been on that side, and I've also been on the other side, and I've experienced the drunk parties, Uh, all the stuff that he did. He said, I've experienced it all. And you know what he came back with? It's all emptiness. It is all emptiness. And he comes back, and, and the wisdom of God through it all, he finally comes to himself. Praise the Lord for that. Because Solomon's in glory. God forgave him. But he went through it all. And hopefully you and I won't have to go through it all. It's one of the, one of the difficult things about being a parent, I think. You know, it would be so nice just to tell your children, let me explain to you the things that, I've, that have happened to me, and I hope you don't have to go through them. Will you just listen and just let me tell you how it's going to probably play out? And usually it does. But young people got to try it out for themselves, and very seldomly do they listen. So anyway, but a very interesting thing, but accountability is so important, and God had made him accountable, and he makes us accountable too. Let's stand and let's pray. I've kept you a long time. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we just come before you tonight, Lord, and we thank you. Lord, that you've made us accountable. Lord, every time we open your word and we read, Lord Jesus, we are aware that we are made accountable to what we read. And Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would just burn those things deep in our hearts. Lord, that those things, the things that you have worked in us, Lord, would now work themselves out in very practical, very necessary, very godly ways now, Father. So have all of us, Lord, shine the searchlight of your your spirit and the light of Christ all around in our hearts, in every dark area. And Lord, may we be willing to give it all to you, Lord. It's that simple. Lord, be glorified in our lives tonight. Forgive us, cleanse us, enlighten us, Lord, lighten our load. Lord, bring victory over sin. We love you, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 1 Kings. 
Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as our location, service times, information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, and information regarding Bread of Life Academy, our new school opening in the fall of 2023. Just click the school link at the top of the page for more information. Additionally, you may also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's Sanctuary Messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play Podcast or Apple Podcast. You may also join us on Sundays and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.